Attention SLPs and OTs with existing private practices. Are you ready to level up your private practice and your life and make this your breakthrough year? If so, join us for Make More in 2024, a free training offered on Thursday, March 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern to discover how to shift from clinician to CEO. During the training, we'll talk about the importance of maximizing your income, adding revenue streams, setting up systems, and more so that you can ultimately work smarter and build a successful, sustainable, and sellable business. To sign up, just visit growyourprivatepractice.com backslash training. Don't miss the chance to learn how to effectively navigate the growth phase of the private practice journey. See you on the training. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Private Practice Success Stories podcast. I cannot wait to introduce you to Nikki McRory. She is a speech language pathologist in Los Angeles who owns two brick and mortar private practices and has 320 employees. And she has done this in seven years. Without further ado, here's Nikki to tell you how she did it. My name is Jenna Castro Casbon. I am part of a group of private practitioners who have taken client care into our own hands. We are skilled clinicians who pride ourselves on providing high quality care to our clients and their families. We are fighting against productivity requirements, administrative red tape, and unnecessary restrictions. We started our own private practices to take control of our professional and personal lives, of our schedules, of our incomes, of our future. We work hard for our clients, but on our terms. We believe in helping others, but also helping ourselves. We are not interested in competing with each other because we hope we'll all make it. We are successful private practitioners, and these are our stories. All right, so before we dive in, can you please share your name, your location, and the name of your private practice? Absolutely. My name is Nikki McCrory, and my pediatric practice is called McCrory Pediatric Services. And I have two locations in the Los Angeles area, one in Tarzana, California, and the other in Santa Clarita, California. Fantastic. I love speaking to, well, all kinds of private practitioners, but I think lots of people in my audience are particularly interested in hearing from people who have multiple brick and mortar locations. I'm really interested to hear more about that. But before we hear about what's going on with you now, can you take us back to the very beginning of your journey, kind of in the field and what your first, your early days as an SLP were like? Sure. Gosh, it feels like forever ago. And I hate to admit that because I'm going to age myself, but I was very blessed when I moved to Los Angeles to come to graduate school because there was such a critical shortage of speech language pathologists. It allowed me to get an emergency credential and work right away in the school setting. And so I loved that opportunity because while I was learning the field, I could actually apply what I was learning into practice and have some nice years of experience before I started my clinical fellowship. So I felt like that kind of gave me a little bit of an upper hand because by the time I had finished my clinical fellowship, I had already been in a public school, a private school. I had been in adult day healthcare. I had done some inpatient, acute, subacute, and outpatient. So I already had a really nice breadth of experience. And then kind of when I was done with my CF, I decided to just work as an independent contractor. So I continued in the school settings. I also had a contract with a head injury rehab company because I love traumatic brain injury and just kind of was the jack of all trades. On the weekends, I'd work in the nursing home. So 
kind of about maybe five years or so after practicing, it just kind of felt like a natural thing to do, which was to have my own practice. I love it. And it's also nice that you had such a variety of settings. And like you said, just a a breadth in the field and then really trying to think about starting your own. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of like some PRN work or some like weekend work. So it sounded like you were no stranger to working hard to get stuff to reach your goals, right? Very true. Seven days a week, I worked as a speech pathologist. (laughs) So then at some point though, you're like, you know what? I think I should start working for myself. So what was it that really kind of made you think like, okay, not just that you wanted to check the next box of of starting a private practice, but what really made you think, you know what? I think this is my next step. Kind of going back, I think I kind of feel like I'm a creative person and I like developing unique types of programs and ways to work with individuals. And even when I was in the hospital setting, I had worked really hard and finally was granted permission to start a support group, if you will, or it was more of like a conversation group, social skills group for adults that had been post-stroke by many years, but maybe didn't have insurance or things like that. It was a lot of hoops to jump through to make that happen. And I found that anytime that I had an idea, no matter where I worked, I was kind of always having to jump through these hoops. And so I think part of it was also just kind of wanting the own creativity. I'm a big believer of, of I, don't, I don't like to be told no. It's just like, let's just try it and we'll see if it works. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, then that's okay. We can try something different. And so I guess I just really wanted that freedom to be able to kind of create something unique that, that could be my own. Yeah, I think that that's awesome. And I think we all have one life to live, right? And so sometimes people feel excited about the profession, but boxed in by what they can do in their current setting, whatever that is, whether it's a school or a hospital or rehab or whatever. And so I think it's, it's great when people are creative and are able to find not only that you can work creatively with clients, but also creative solutions to make sure that you're also living your ideal life. So, okay. So what did the first, like the early days of your private practice look like? Oh my gosh. So, so scary. I remember I, at first I was a road warrior. So I'd have all my toys in my car. And of course you're driving around LA and you hear Mickey Mouse in the back and you get to a house and there's no air conditioning and you're dying. And then you're like, oh, if I only have this one thing that's up in my car today, rats. So there was a lot of that. And then a lot of time to spend driving because, you know, it's kind of a big area. So you have like a half an hour in between clients. So my days were very long and I was starting to get a wait list and I decided, gosh, maybe it's time to get a brick and mortar. And I was so afraid, but luckily I had still had that independent contract job at a school. And one of the psychologists there had a husband who was also wanting to start a private practice in the same kind of idea. So we kind of got together and said, let's just split this space. It was a very tiny little 500 square foot space. I had two offices and a teeny tiny waiting room. He had his own office and I had a a restroom. And I remember it was $500 a month. And it was the scariest thing I ever did in my life was to sign that piece of paper. But obviously it's worked out great. So I'm glad I took that that gamble. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's really nice that you were able to find someone to kind of go in on the space and split, split the cost of the rent, right? Because I mean, depending on what area people live in geographically, there are some areas where you can get pretty cheap rent, $250, $500. And then if you live in places like Los Angeles or like I live in Boston, it's a lot more to get those those spaces. But starting off small really is the best idea, I feel like, for everybody, right? And something that you can afford. And maybe even if it's a little bit of a scary number, that also kind of lights a fire under you to get that revenue in and to get those clients coming in. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And luckily for me, it was pretty short lived. It was about 18 months. And then I was able to move up to the boulevard on Ventura Boulevard and, and get a nicer suite. And at that point, I already had a few employees. And, and so it was, again, just kind of that natural next progression. I love it. And so I know that the very beginning that you mentioned that you have a pediatric private practice, right? So what kind of clients like do you guys specialize? Or are you more generalists? What, what is your what kinds of clients does your practice serve? I mean, I would say it's, it's, it's more generalist because we will get children with hearing impairment, cleft palate, uh, fluency disorders, voice disorders. We kind of get that gamut, but I also feel like, and, and maybe it's just the uniqueness of autism. You know, there's just such a large prevalence of autism spectrum disorder. So we definitely do have a lot of individuals on the spectrum. I also think too, perhaps it, it is my passion and, and we have a therapeutic preschool that's geared for children on the spectrum. We have an intensive early intervention program for kids on the spectrum. So we have a lot of services. I teach the Hannah More Than Words program. So we have a lot of things that are kind of geared towards that niche but we really do see children across the ages and grade levels, as well as just different speech and language needs. Yeah. I think that that's fabulous, right? It's, it's nice to be able to serve all kids, but then also be able to maybe kind of hone in and figure out what your niches do. And if it's an area of particular interest to you, right? I think that that's important, right? I think most people choose private practice because they want to do more of, of a certain thing that lights them up and allows them to do their best work. So you mentioned a, a therapeutic preschool, right? And an intensive early intervention. How did you decide to, to add those offerings to your private practice? You know, it's a good question because initially I had no intention of being multidisciplinary. I went in with the intent to just be a speech pathology practice. And then I would hear these stories from parents just sharing with me how much time they're spending in the car, driving to and from appointments. And at that time, there were very few, at least in my area, very few multidisciplinary clinics. So a family would drive to one area of the town to go get OT and then another area for PT and then another area for speech therapy. And then I think with my own frustration of like trying to reach out to those practitioners, you know, when, when they're seeing clients, you're seeing clients, it's hard to connect and and really feeling like, gosh, maybe this is something we could do because maybe this child was more regulated, had OT first and maybe there'd be more benefit to my speech therapy session. So it would help me be a better practitioner, but help me help families more, and then maybe give families a little bit higher quality of life. So it just kind of was, a, a, I guess, a, again, a natural progression. You kind of listen to what the needs of the community are and kind of what makes sense at that time. And you just keep growing and adding to your comfort level. And also, that also is a creative solution, right? This goes back to the beginning when you said that you were thinking creatively and you wanted to be creative, right? So I think that's something that that's a pro like a problem developed, right? That you had these kids who had speech, but like were going across town for other things. And so you solved that problem by bringing other disciplines in house. And I think that that's, that's awesome. So, so related to that, that kind of speaks to hiring. And I know that that's something that we had talked about a little bit over email before we decided to, to do this interview. When did you know that you were ready to hire? When I was so burnt out coming home crying every night and ready to throw in the towel and asking myself, why did I start a private practice? Because I was literally working like seven days a week because you have to do the business piece and you have to do the therapy piece. So I was carrying my 40 hour week caseload still scheduling for the whole office, helping my husband with billing, doing all the administrative stuff, ordering supplies, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And I think it just got to the point where I just recognized I had to, I had to give up some control. And I think I had to learn how to trust other people and know that 
even if they're not going to do it the exact same way, I think you get to the point in life where you finally realize you know, good is good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect because what's the cost if you don't, right? Being burnt out, crying, coming home every night, feeling like I want to throw in the towel obviously was not where I wanted to be. So I knew it was time to, to get the extra help that we needed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you're in this, this state where things are like going a little bit too crazy. Like you're wearing all of the hats and starting to to feel like burned out. So decided, okay, I'm ready to hire. What was it like to hire your first employer or your first couple of employees or contractors from like a leadership point of view, right? You would, you had never done that before. So what did that feel like to take on that new role as a private practitioner? I think mixed feelings, you know, partly kind of nervous, but also kind of excited. And I think as you're in the business more, you start to really love the business side. Like I love looking at data and graphs and looking at lost profit analyses and all those different kinds of things. So I think it was a little bit of both. You know, you make some mistakes along the way because you don't always know. Sometimes you don't know what, what, a, what, what a position looks like on paper that you create doesn't always translate to to what it is. And I also discovered, and I'm sure many of your listeners have too, is you can interview a person and they can sound amazing. They can be amazing and you can check their references and they're amazing. And then they start the job and it's like, oh no, where did that amazing person go? And so I, I definitely learned the importance of hiring right. And what I feel mean, what I mean by that is that there are skills you can teach people even if you hire a, a, another clinician, you can mentor them and you can develop skills. What you can't develop in most people are interpersonal skills. They bring them with them. And if you just have one negative Nelly, it can absolutely impact the morale of your whole entire team very, very quickly. So my husband follows some big business leader and he was quoting him saying, you hire right and you fire quickly. And it's, and it's true. It's sad, but true. <laughs> And I think that you actually prepared a list of interview questions, right? For the listeners that we're going to put on the show notes for the blog. Yeah, I thought it would be fun because I think we always think about to ask questions as it relates to the skill sets needed for the job. And while that is important and that's a given, I think it's really important to ask questions that will give you information about how that person will be a cultural fit for your organization. Do they have the same values that match your mission statement? Do they have the same work ethic, the same passion and compassion and community? communication skills and integrity and all those things that you would value with any employee, whether they're answering your phone, doing your medical billing, stocking supplies. It's, it's just important at every level, I think. Yeah. I think that's something that people when they're first starting a private practice don't really think about because it's just them, right? And so they don't really have to think about what the company culture is or what the core values might be, right? But as you start to grow or as you're even just starting to think about grow and bringing people into your company, because you want them to not only represent you well, but you also want them to, as you said, be a cultural fit within the culture of your company. There are things that you can't teach, right? And there's different people who fit in wonderfully at one place and not so wonderfully at another place. And it's not their fault or anything. It's just a different kind of a person and different kind of a fit. But the good news is when you're the boss, <laughs> you get to make the decision about what your company culture and, and values are, and then who's going to best fit. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So my next question is kind of related. You mentioned that you started off in a smaller space and then you moved up to a bigger space as you were bringing in more staff and growing your practice, obviously. At the beginning, you also mentioned that you have two locations. 
So how did you make that decision that you were ready to have two locations? Again, just kind of really being aware of your community and what your needs are. So in that particular area of Santa Clarita, there just is not a lot of, there are not a lot of options for families, but it's an area of which a lot of more families are moving to. A lot of new schools have been built. So you can kind of see this future opportunity. And we did have some families that would travel all the way to us, but to be in a car for a 30 to 45 minute drive and then have a therapy session is not always optimal. Some children become very dysregulated or very tired. And so again, it just, it just kind of made sense. And again, we started off very small out there. So we mitigated some risk and again, just grew and grew and grew. And we just moved in two months before COVID into a 30 square foot building and we occupied the whole building. So it just shows you in seven years, how quickly we went from one little suite in the building to two suites in the building and now a full 30,000 square foot building. Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations. That is really tremendous growth. And I think it really speaks to you as a, not just a a leader, but a business leader, right? You've mentioned several times really having to now start thinking like a business owner and that you've really come to love that aspect of, of your life. Did you ever think that you would own a business or is this something that came into your life later? Okay. So yes and no. So when I was at undergraduate school, I took my uh, course in communication disorders. And on that very first day, the professor talked about what speech pathology was, all the different types of populations you could work with, the different work settings and the different pay opportunities that were. And I remember walking out with this young man and I said, gosh, this seems interesting. I think I'm going to be a speech pathologist. And he said, you know what? I think I'm going to be an audiologist. And I said, and I think I'm going to own my own practice someday. And he's like, yeah, me too. Okay. Now did that plan the scene? I don't know. I honestly never thought about it again until I thought about it again, which was obviously many years later. So <laughs> sometimes we have those moments in life that just seem kind of just like nothing moments that then end up like planting a seed for the rest of our lives. And we don't always recognize that at the time. So I think that's that's pretty cool that that happened to you. And then, and yeah, sometimes we just don't think about it. And then years later, we're like, oh my gosh, I think I thought about this years ago. Right. (laughs) So, Speaking of of planting seeds right now, what what kind of seeds are you planting for the future? Right. What are you hoping for your private practice to look like in the next six months to 12 months, which is kind of difficult to answer right now because we're in the middle of coronavirus, but in theory, what are you thinking? (laughs) Well, yeah, before coronavirus, we we were entertaining a third location and that would be it, no more, done after that. I still him and ha because I think it also boils down to quality of life and I don't want to be spread too thin. And again, what's nice about these two locations is I feel like it's easy for me to be at both locations throughout the week. And so I still feel like I have a little bit of, sounds bad, control, but you know, your eye is on it. You feel good about it. You know what's going on. I, I worry a little bit about a third location because I feel like, eh, does that impact the quality a little bit, right? Because it's it's not just, about, it's not about quantity. It's about the quality of the services. So eh, maybe a pipe dream, not sure. What I would love to do is when we, when we built out our new office space out in Santa Clarita, we built out this beautiful room for in-house continuing education courses. It's state-of-the-art. It's it's huge. It's lovely. I would love to be able to do that. It's, it's ready to go. So I do provide courses that are ASHA CEU approved. I also do that for the BACB because I'm a board-certified behavioral analyst on top of being a speech-language pathologist. And then there's a QABA board, which is Qualified Autism Service Practitioners. 
So I am a CE provider through all of them. So I'm really hoping to be back to my course development and offering courses and, and doing live. I've, I've done some film stuff, but live is so much better. I love doing like the hands-on opportunities to practice and give feedback and just more engaging. That brings up a, like, if we're talking about like a hierarchy of how you can start in a practice and then grow within it and then beyond it, right? Is like you start with just you as the solo practitioner. And then at some point, like you described, you got too busy and had to hire people if you wanted to be able to grow more. Then you brought on more people moving, you know, multiple locations and whatnot. And then adding an education component to your practice, I think is a way that you can definitely reach more people, right? If you're thinking not just about increasing the income and not not just for you personally, but, you know, for the practice and employees and everybody else, but then also increasing your impact, then doing that, those kind of CEU courses are a great way to do that because now you're going to have an opportunity to impact other professionals, SLPs, but maybe other people, other disciplines can take these courses too. I think that's fantastic. Tell me more about what you've learned through that process. I've been a Hannon certified SLP for many years. And so I think I, what I loved about learning their framework is, you know, they use that four P cycle on, on how adult learners learn. And so I feel like I've carried that through any type of training that I've done for my staff, even internally before I was even a CEU provider. But what I'm learning is like this whole new marketing thing. I, I, I hate to even say this because as a, you, you'll kill me because it's the opposite of, of what you teach people. But I literally have never put any effort in marketing my business. It's always been word of mouth. It's been pediatricians. I don't mail things out or whatever. So my social media has not been grand. I've been, I've been putting a lot of emphasis in it during COVID because I've had more time, but I've had to learn things like sales funnels for your courses, like this whole new world of like language of like how to market a course and setting up a, a pl- finding the platform to put your course on and connecting that to your PayPal account. So I guess just more of the, I feel like the course creation part I've already kind of had, it's really learning to navigate this whole new world of marketing your courses and setting them up on the right platforms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with, with not marketing on social media or not doing all these other things, right? You have to know your audience. You have to know who your people are, right? And there's some people who are really comfortable like meeting with doctors and they're like relationship kind of people, right? So that kind of, that comes naturally to them. And, and by the way, listeners, how you build word of mouth marketing is by A, giving people something to talk about, like something positive, hopefully. Right. But also like getting those relationships so that you have people who are talking about you and talking to you and then sending their clients your way. Right. You don't have to be on social media if you don't want to. No. And I, and actually appreciate that point because in the very beginning, I did exactly that. I actually would go to the local pediatrician's offices and I knew the only way they would meet with me is during their lunch break. So I had to entice them. So I would send them a menu and I would bring in lunch and I would talk about what speech pathologists do and when to refer a child. And luckily I've been in the same community for years and the pediatricians were in the building. That was a smart move. Same building I was. So I developed those relationships very naturally. And then those have just stuck over the years. And as new doctors have come into their practice, of course they hear, oh, Dr. So-and-so, who do you send your kids to? So so I guess there, there was some marketing, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, there's just, there's different ways to do it. But I think you also have to think about what is your personality. And then you also mentioned your location, right? To be in the same building as pediatricians is that location, location, location thing, right? That's like a a perfect way to get referrals, but they still, even you can be in the same building, but they have to know about you, right? 
<laughs> yes. Yes. People do like free lunch, but I think that that's, that's a really important point. And then when it comes also to selling courses, obviously that's, that's something that I do a lot of, but you, it's the same kind of thing. You have to figure out, you know, like who is your target market and where are they? Right. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they're online, right. And they're, they're speech pathologists or other professionals who are online. And because of the way that ASHA has set up our profession and we have to get a certain amount of continuing education credits in a three-year cycle or whatever. So that's where people are going to find you as opposed to like a brick and mortar private practice. People are going to find you through the community. You have to always think about when it comes to, to marketing, where are your people (laughs) and you have to meet them where they are, right. Versus like creating new opportunities and whatnot for them. So I think that's fantastic that you've really moved up this hierarchy of growing your practice. And now you're growing it kind of in a different way by having this education component. What advice would you give to speech pathologists who are just starting to think about private practice, but haven't really like committed to doing it yet? They're just maybe thinking about dipping their toes in. I'd say dip your toes, <laughs> dip up, dip up. No, it's so rewarding. I mean, obviously be smart about it. Don't make foolish you know, mistakes. Don't be so naive that you think you're going to throw a sign on your door and, you know, people are just going to show up, you know, do your research, know, know your market, know your niche and, and, and do your, do your homework. But I would say it's a, it's a great risk. Hey, the worst thing that could happen is it fails. Great. Then you'll try something different, but to go through your whole life and not do something that you're passionate about, that you're thinking about would just be very sad. <laughs> Definitely. And then my second piece, I haven't asked anyone to, to do this, but I'm wondering what would your advice be to like a, the kind of person who was in your shoes when you were that stressed out solopreneur who was just doing all of the things, wearing all the hats, doing the business stuff and the, the treatment. What advice would you give to that level private practitioner? I would say recognize the signs of burnout before you get to the point where you're coming home every night and crying and know that by you burning the candle on both ends, you're actually bottlenecking your business growth. So know that, yes, they're going to take that person's or people are going to take a piece of your pie and maybe they're not going to have any billable. So know, know how much pie you have to have to pay your bills and, and, and just just get the help that you need. And even if it's just even somebody part-time, if you can't take that plunge to give them a full-time salaried position, I think just don't wait as long as I did. It was, it was not good. It was not fun. And then when you're so stressed like that, like you don't even, you can't manage your stress. You can't even make good decisions. And that's really where I was starting to be. So I would say definitely recognize the signs if you get deep and, and don't be afraid to take that plunge for that help. Because I really do think that we bottleneck ourselves when we don't. Yeah. And look what could happen to you if you decide to hire people, right? Right. You could go beyond your, your, what you ever thought you could. (laughs) That's exactly right. Right. So by recognizing the signs and then, and then not just staying stuck there, right. SLPs are really, really good at staying stuck in analysis paralysis sometimes, but saying, you know what, I'm here, I'm stuck. What am I going to do to move past it? And if people have been listening to this podcast for a while, I hope that you've recognized that some of the people who I've had on here who have like the bigger private practices are making decisions quickly, right? They're figuring out what is a problem and how quickly, what do I need to do to move past this versus being stuck in anxiety and overwhelm and that kind of other stuff. 
Absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned. My husband always jokes, you know, we're paid to make the good, we're, we're paid to make the big bucks because we're paid to make the right quick decisions. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I remember during COVID, you know, when everything was first starting and, you know, everything was shut down and people were trying to figure out how to switch over to telepractice. I had interviewed two other people on the podcast. So Renee Robles and Christina Ramos, who are also in California, they have four locations, now five, but they were saying that, you know, like all of a sudden this happened and they had, I forget it. They have like 130 employees or something, some crazy number of employees. And they're like, we had to make a decision for what telepractice program to go with. We made the decision over the weekend, like on a Friday night, we like looked at a couple different things. By Sunday, we were starting training. By Monday, we were training our employees, right? And you have to do that. Absolutely. We have 320 employees and, and we had to act very swiftly too. And it, it was amazing to me to see other practices really just frozen, like not knowing how to respond. And while we were definitely hit by COVID is, is everybody was, I mean, I'm really happy to say like, business is booming. We're doing great. There are still some practices that still aren't kind of knowing what to do. And more and more families are wanting to come in and get face-to-face services. And it was, it was about doing all that early work and putting all those procedures and protocols in place for telehealth, but also how could we do stuff in clinic and be safe about it? Yeah, I think that's great. So can I just ask one thing sort of related to that is what would you say that you, that you in your practice did to just like, keep going? Like what were some, like, maybe like a key decision or two that you made that you feel like helped you ride, like ride the wave. And now our, our business is booming versus staying like stuck. Like some other practices are right now. I think it's just, just staying focused. Like, why are you here? Why do you do what you do? And it's all about the families. And just because this is happening, these families, I mean, these kids can't, have no services. I mean, they were having no school. And then to think about no services, no school, like they're going to regress so much. And that's not, that's not okay. That's not why we're here. That's not why we have this business. So I think a lot of it was just really focusing on the families. Like these families more than ever need our help and support because their, their whole life has been turned upside down. And then on the flip side, I feel a great deal of responsibility for our employees. I think that's one of the bigger stresses of, of having a practice is you're not just, just like, if I have to live on the street, that's fine. But if my employees can't pay their mortgages and their car payments, whatever, then that would be devastating to me. So we had to figure out how to keep going so that everybody could stay viable. Like it wasn't going to be okay that like we laid off everybody, like that just wasn't going to be an option. So just, it's not an option. You got to figure it out. So. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that you, what a, what a great sort of way to end this is just by, you just got to figure it out. Right. And I feel like throughout this interview, you've really shown different times that you have just figured it out. Right. Whether it was when you were like having your first office space or figuring out like how to hire or how to have different offerings and multidisciplinary and then your education business. Right. I think that's really speaks to like who you are as a person, as an SLP, as a businesswoman is to be able to, to figure it out. So thank you, Nikki, for sharing your story with all of our listeners and just being such a great example of a woman who has not only figured it out, but is like thriving and, and providing such a wonderful service to your community and for also the people who work for you. So oh, thank you, Jenna. I appreciate that. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. 
You're welcome. So where can people find more about you? Like on online or on social media or wherever? Oh, I'm all on social media now. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere now. <laughs> so I'm, on, I'm on Instagram and it's uh, McCrory underscore pediatric underscore services. I have Facebook. I just started Pinterest. So I've got that too. <laughs> no, those are the three places that I'm at. So Instagram and then Facebook is just www.mccrorypediatrics.com. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for being here and for being interviewed and for sharing your story and just being such a wonderful inspiration of someone who in seven years went from just you, did you say 320 employees? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Congratulations. Thanks, Jenna. Take care. Thanks for having me. Okay. So how amazing is Nikki to go from zero to 320 employees in seven years? Oh my goodness, this woman is on fire. So if you have big dreams and you want to start your private practice and grow to multiple brick and mortar locations, employees, the whole thing, you have to start somewhere, right? Even if that is your goal, every private practice starts with one client. Nikki's did and yours will too. So let's talk about how to get that first client. I want you to head over to startyourprivatepractice.com backslash webinar where I have a free training on how to start your private practice from scratch, even if you have no background in business and you're not even sure if this is what you want to do. Head over to startyourprivatepractice.com backslash webinar and watch this free training. It lasts about an hour and it will teach you the ins and outs of starting a private practice just like Nikki did. All right. So enjoy and thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Now that you've listened to the episode, I want to invite you to a free training. Do you have a business background? Most SLPs who go into private practice don't. You went to grad school, not business school. But here you are trying to start or grow a private practice. The good news is business skills can be learned And I want to help you make solid decisions on how to start and grow your private practice so you can serve your community and build a legacy while doing therapy on your own terms and your own time. And yes, make more money. I want to invite you to my free training specifically to help SLPs get the background information you need to know in order to be successful. There are two tracks the start track and the grow track because the needs of beginners and growth level private practitioners are very different. The trainings are short but thorough and can be consumed and put into action quickly. I want to teach you how to think, act, and behave like the private practitioner you are meant to be so that you can step into the vision you have for your private practice and your life. And the best part, these trainings are completely free. To register right now, simply visit independentclinician.com. Click start or grow, and we can get started right now. Well, this episode might be over, but we don't have to say goodbye. Head on over to independentclinician.com for resources that will help you at each stage of your private practice journey. If you're on Instagram, let's connect. Follow me and send me a DM. I'm at independent clinician. And if you're on Facebook, make sure that you join the SLP and OT private practice beginners Facebook group. 
All right, off to help more regular SLPs and OTs become successful private practitioners. Let me know if I can help you too.